0: 12, 13 through 34. And they sent him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And when they brought him one, he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to them who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, for the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and, and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're a right teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices.
1: In our text this morning, in Mark chapter 12, we've actually entered into sort of the final week of Jesus's life. Jesus's authority in, in these final days uh, of his life—he's he, he, his authority is being challenged, is being challenged, and his most obsessive critics. Uh, his most like sort of pointed and involved sort of haters are in place around him looking to sort of systematically take him down. And soon they'll succeed and drag him to, to hang on, on a cross. No, spoiler alert, right But like the, soon they're gonna they're gonna uh, eventually succeed and he's gonna hang on a cross. They're gonna take him out to to, to be beaten to hang on a cross. but at this point, At this point in our text, before that happens, the tension's really high. The tension's really high, and you got to picture the scene here. Like Jesus is is owning his challengers. He's confronting the ways that they're using sort of the Jewish traditions uh, in their religion to sort of puff themselves up and keep others out. And so waves of them are coming in to challenge him, to embarrass him, and to sort of discredit him. And they're trying to track him uh, to, to to track him down and 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 to and to get him with these trick questions to sort of make him look like an idiot in front of the public. They perched him in the temple. They've gotten him in front of crowds of people, and, they keep, and they're saying, you know, let, let's try and trap him with these trick questions uh, to make a fool out of him. And that's sort of the scene that we're reading this morning. And so they ask him, in our text, a series of questions here in Mark chapter 12. And we're going to look at three different questions that get asked of Jesus. First, we're going to look at a political question. Secondly, there's a theological question. And lastly, there's a moral question. So a political question, a theological question, and a moral question. Now, some of you might be here this morning and you have your own questions for Jesus. You have your own questions for him. You have your own questions about him. And this morning you want to see, like what, what I want you to see rather, is that Jesus can handle our questions Jesus can handle your questions. He, he doesn't snub these, 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 these critics that have come up to him, these mere creatures that are coming to him. He doesn't snub them for challenging his divine authority. He actually engages them. He actually answers their questions, as we'll see in a moment. And his answers, the way that he approaches these questions and the ways that he answers them, reveal something about himself but they also reveal something about the ones that are asking. And we see that Jesus isn't intimidated by their questions. He's not intimidated by your questions, by our questions. And we see that in his word, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that he provides the most satisfying answers to our deepest questions in himself. And so let's look at these questions one at a time. First, the political question. Look at verse 13 with me. 13 uh, says they, and they, talking about the religious leaders that were threatened by Jesus, it says they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his top. Now, here's the first thing you need to know. The Pharisees and the Herodians were sent by some of Jesus' critics together. The Pharisees and the Herodians were sent together to trap Jesus in his talk. Now, why does that matter? Because these are two groups that just did not normally mix, right? These are two groups that could not be more divided from each other. It's like saying that his critics sent the Trojans and the Bruins together to trap Jesus, right? Right? or maybe a better metaphor would say they sent the Democrats and the Republicans to trap Jesus in his talk. I mean, that's a thing, right? (laughs) Like two groups that normally do not mix. The Pharisees, they were sort of the the intensely religious, dogmatic purists. They were anti-Roman against the government and its influence on the culture. They were like, think like uber, like super conservative right-wingers. They were all about like keeping... The, 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 the people, the, the Jewish people, God's people, they were all about keeping them from sliding into uh, the cultural influence, bringing them back to their historic Jewish roots. Like, this group didn't like Jesus because he disrupted their religious agenda. And the Herodians, on the other hand, they were sort of the non-religious allies of Rome. They were followers of Herod, that's how they got their name, uh, who Herod himself was a sellout. Even though he was part Jewish, he was sort of like Rome's errand boy. He oppressed the Jews in exchange for a fat Roman paycheck. So think of this group as sort of like the uber-progressive left. Like they said, if you want to live happy and prosper, then you just need to mold yourself according to cultural progress and deny sort of the old Jewish approach to truth and goodness. Like this group didn't like Jesus because he disrupted their influence too. And so you got two groups that are naturally at odds with each other, naturally enemies with one another, are now standing in unity together against a new common enemy. And for them, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at their question and the way that they challenge him. And I want you to remember that this, this question is actually a trap. It says in verse 14, They, the Pharisees and Herodians, they came together and said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, was there, so they're kind of sort of like flattering him by addressing him as teacher. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. So they just keep laying on the flattery. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's their question. Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, because Jesus knew they called him teacher with their lips to butter him up, but they didn't trust him with their hearts. Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So now, what's going on? This is about way more than some tax policy. You see, paying this this tax, which cost a denarius, to Rome was, was really an open sore, a fresh open sore for really devout Jews. Because they were supposed to be, the Jewish people were supposed to be God's redeemed people right? That's what marked them, is they were God's redeemed people, the ones that God delivered out of slavery in Egypt through Moses generations earlier. But now, in this day and age, Rome had taken over, and they just want to humiliate the Jews. Just to humiliate the Jews, they add an extra tax to the taxes they already had, they added an extra tax called a head tax, which would be just for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar in Rome. That is what historians call a low blow, right? To add salt to the wound, this head tax was costed one denarius. And you want to know what a, what a, what a denarius looked like? Look at this picture right here. A denarius actually had a picture... Of Caesar on it. Now you might be looking at that and like say, like, well, that looks like a common coin, right? Looks like maybe one of our dimes or one of our quarters. But you need to understand that like having a, a face on a coin is like ubiquitous, like in our day and age. But back then, no one did that. No one did that. You never carved or imprinted somebody's face on a coin. This was the first time that this was ever done, and it was specifically on a coin that would be used by the Jews to pay their tax to Caesar, that man right there. And so you got a graven image of Caesar on the coin with the words, uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, high priest. It's almost like the Romans go out of their way to offend the Jews, right? And needless to say, this was a really unpopular tax among the Jews, which you're probably thinking, like, is there such a thing as a popular tax? But this was, like, the next level up, right? Like, picture if, 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 if our nation, and picture if America was conquered by North Korea, right? And Kim Jong-un created this, like, $1,000 tax required of all Americans for the privilege of being his subjects, And then imagine that he just started printing these new $1,000 bills for us to use to pay that tax, and that $1,000 bill just had his face on it. That's, That's the scene here. That's what's going on. And so I want you to back up and sort of picture the scene, feel the intensity of it. The Pharisees and the Herodians are approaching Jesus, who's a Jewish teacher, And they approach Jesus, Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, should we we pay this tax to Caesar or not? You know what they're trying to do with this question, right? They're, they're, They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in trouble. Like, this is happening out on the temple steps, so they're trying to make him look bad in front of the public. They're asking him this question in the public, and they know that if he says yes, pay the tax, then all his kinspeople in the temple, all the Jews, will reject him. They'll be mad at him. They'll want to throw him out. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then these critics, they could turn him in for trying to start a revolt. Because 25 years earlier, the last guy who tried to start a revolt among the Jewish people, he called on all the Jews to refuse this specific tax. And that guy got caught, thrown in prison, and executed just a little bit more than two decades earlier. So these people, it's like they're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to trap him. If he says yes, bad news for him. If he says no, don't pay it, bad news for him. Now, look at how Jesus responds. Verse 15. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. <clears throat> Incidentally, they happen to have one. So verse 16, it says, they brought one to him and he said to them, whose likeness an inscription is this. They said to him, "Obviously, Caesar's." Verse seventeen. Jesus said to them, "Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." Now, this interaction and Jesus' response is brilliant. You see, I mean, do you see what he what he did here? They ask Jesus, they're basically asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, what political box do you fall into? Do you fall into the left or into the right? But Jesus refuses to be jammed and crammed into this political box. When asked about the relationship we should have to the state, to politics, to culture, he doesn't give like this simplistic like yes or no answer. He gives sort of this both and answer. It's nuanced. It's full of paradox. He both resists what's on the coin, but he also accepts it. He says, Look, Caesar's face is on it, so give him the tax. But give to God, he says, what has his image on it. And that's you. Give to Caesar this coin that has his face on it, but give to God what is made in God's image. That's you. Give him all of you. Give God all of you. You see, this is the first time that we see recorded this sort of like limited government theory. And at this time, it's revolutionary. It's revolutionary because on the one hand, he says, yeah, sure, give Caesar the tax. But on the other hand, he says, but don't give Caesar ultimate authority. Caesar doesn't own you. God does. He says, sure, honor the law, but make sure you honor the Lord above the law. He says, you know where the line is? You know, you know when you say no to the political culture? You know when you say no to the culture? It's when the culture forbids what God commands. Because God is your supreme authority. Or it's when God forbids what culture commands. Because again, God is your supreme authority. Not the man on this coin. You see, what Jesus is doing here is brilliant. Jesus is saying that the way of him, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, transcends our politics. You can't fit, like, nicely and neatly fit him into any single party. You can't cram him into a political box. You can't mix up God and Caesar. What that means for us, in, in, you know, thousands of years later in a democracy like ours, is that means that we, we live... It means that we live out our deep Christian theological convictions thoughtfully, biblically, winsomely, prayerfully, but that we're also not blindly enslaved to a particular party. Because your party doesn't own you, Jesus does. Your nation doesn't own you, Jesus does. And so Jesus sort of takes their whole question, tears it apart, and flips it on its head. It's almost like you see the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to, like, pull back the iron teeth, right? Set up this trap for Jesus, and Jesus just walks up to it and says, hey, nice trap. Kicks it, and it just falls apart, right? That's what's happening right here. He just tears apart their political question. Now that leads us to the second question, the theological question. The end of verse 17 tells us they all marveled at Jesus. So then a third group called the Sadducees, they come in. This is another group of religious Jewish leaders. And this third group comes in, and it's almost like they got subbed in, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians are like, oh, we can't do this. Like, Tag that guy. The Sadducees come in, and they've got their own challenge. Verse 18, it says the Sadducees came to him. They came to Jesus and who say that there is no resurrection. Now, that this verse is telling us that the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, did not believe in a resurrection. Now, this group, the Sadducees, was an educated and privileged group of priests that, on the one hand, they said they believed in God, but the God they believed in was sort of like a stripped-down version of the traditional Jewish faith. They didn't read the whole Old Testament like the other Jews at the time did, they only read the first five books, the Torah of the Bible. And they believed that the purpose of life was to be a good person. Like that was it. Just be a good person. Do your best to be a good person. They didn't believe in a heavenly kingdom like the one that Jesus came to bring. They didn't believe in a savior like the one who Jesus was. A savior who came to save sinners and to renew and liberate all things for eternity. Like that wasn't, on, that wasn't on their blueprints. Like they only had the first five books of the Bible and they believed that with those five books, all they had to, 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 to sort of uh, worry themselves about was just just let, let's be good people. And so they try to make a fool of Jesus and his belief in the afterlife. Like they, these Sadducees, they would normally criticize the Pharisees for their belief in the afterlife. And so again, we have another group of people who it's like normally they're at odds with each other. But now they're subbing each other in. They're finding a common ground because they all want to get rid of Jesus because he is completely turning their world upside down. So verse 19, they question Jesus. They say, teacher. So these guys are trying to flatter him too. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, believes no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers So then they have this hypothetical situation. They say, imagine there's seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And so the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And then all the way down to the seven who still left no offspring. He says, last of all, the woman also died. So their question, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. First of all, I know this is hypothetical, but this is a tragic story, right? (laughs) Tragic story. But the question that they're trying to trap Jesus on is like, hey, in the resurrection, Jesus, in the resurrection, who will this woman be married to? Who will be her hashtag forever bay, right? That's their question how how do we make sense of this which which kind of seems like a silly question at first right like this weird like really tragic hypothetical question, uh, 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 question that they're asking situation seems like a silly question at first but then like i thought about it i'm like look if something awful happened happened to me like god forbid if something awful happened to me like my wife is a very beautiful woman and she might she likely would remarry and so when I was thinking about this, I'm like, we're, so we're all, like, imagine, like, if, if we're all in, like, the new heavens and the new earth in glory, like, that would be a really awkward reunion for us, right? Like, hey, love, who's that guy, <laughs> right? The Sadducees here, by asking this question, they're saying, well, look, like, how awkward is that situation? Like, what if that, what if that happened to somebody, and what if that happened to somebody, like, seven times, They got remarried like seven times. See, this is a theological issue that was important to the Sadducees because so much of what they believed banked on the fact that they did not believe on the afterlife. And so this was an important issue for them. And so they're pressing Jesus on it. They're taking out like their best apologetic arguments for their position. They're trying to press Jesus on it and to poke holes on his logic. And like, do you see what they're, they're, they're trying to do here? Like they're saying, look, if there's really more than just one life, the one that we have right in front of us, if there's really a life after this life, then this woman, in this scenario, will either be married to all seven forever, which would be an awkward setup in eternity and a total violation of the biblical teaching on marriage, one man, one woman in a monogamous covenant relationship, or if she's married to just one of the seven in the afterlife, then like, how do we figure out which one? The seven guys have like a Rochambeau tournament to figure out which one gets to be married with her for an eternity. Like, either answer that Jesus gives leaves this hypothetical family in this really awkward afterlife. Which to them, asking this question, is convincing enough to deny the afterlife. And so for them, they thought that this question, that this scenario was sort of like a silver bullet to sort of uh, 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 show how how silly Jesus' belief in the afterlife was. So how does Jesus respond to them? How does he respond? Verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, you have to appreciate the continued brilliance of Jesus here. He offers to them a third option. He says, look, it doesn't have to be one option or the other. It's a third and truer option he says, look, she won't be married to any of the seven in the afterlife. He won't, she won't be married to all seven and she won't be married to just one because there is no marriage in the afterlife. He tells them, look, you don't know this because you don't actually study the scriptures for yourselves. And you don't know the power of God, he says. He says the afterlife is filled with the love of God to this, to this degree and it's magnified with the power of God so powerful that it's gonna overshadow Marriage itself. In verse 26, he continues, and he's like, by the way, as for the whole fact of the dead being raised, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, which, by the way, is the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, which, if you remember, is part of their sort of stripped-down collection. And he says to them, Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush when God speaks to Moses through the bush? He says how God spoke to him, Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In verse 27, Jesus adds commentary and says, he, God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You guys are quite wrong. Now, I want you to notice something It's subtle, but it's important in verse 26. Does he say, does God say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Does he say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. When God spoke to Moses, he, he introduced himself and he said, I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is present tense. Even though these guys have been dead for centuries, God is talking about them in the present tense. He's saying that he has a present and active relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's telling Moses that they are in some sense alive and in a relationship with him in heaven. The afterlife is real, God is saying. Jesus is revealing. The afterlife is real according to their own scriptures. According to their own scriptures, the second book of the Bible, Jesus is showing these Sadducees, turn to the book of Exodus. The afterlife is right there when God is talking to Moses. Now, you know why they were so skeptical of the afterlife? You know what their hang up was with the afterlife? These Sadducees, first of all, they were really wealthy, they were really privileged, and they had a really good like present life. And they denied the resurrection and the afterlife because they thought that the resurrection afterlife was escapist. They thought it was impractical. They cared so much about the here and now. They cared so much about what living was like and the here and now. Like, their motto might be look, if you're too, if you're, like, one of the models they might have is, like, if you're too heavenly minded, then you might be of no earthly good. You guys heard that in some, in in, in some, in some way, right? If you're too heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly good. But here, Jesus is teaching that the resurrection, Changes everything. Belief in the resurrection, belief in the afterlife changes everything. Jesus is saying here, like, look, if the resurrection is true, and it is, then the God that we worship is our God forever. And that changes everything. His grace doesn't just continue our life. It transforms our life with divine power. If you're this kind of heavenly minded, a biblical kind of heavenly minded, the kind of heavenly minded that is shaped by the scriptures and the power of God, Jesus says, then you will be of great earthly good because you don't have to find your sense of value and purpose in the here and now like the Sadducees did. You can find meaning and value and purpose in the God who loves you as you are with a forever kind of love, a powerful kind of love, an enduring kind of love. And with that love, you'll be better equipped to live your life for the glory of God and the good of others when you embrace that love. You see, Jesus, again, is taking their question, tearing it apart, pointing them to biblical truth and showing them how the truth, the goodness, the beauty of who he is, what he's proclaiming, and what the, what God is teaching and what it means to, to live in his kingdom is so much better than we could ever imagine. Completely breaks up our categories that we want to fit God into, that we want to fit Jesus into. And so we saw Jesus dismantle the political question. We saw him dismantle this theological question. Now, number three, I want us to look at the moral question. The moral question. Now, one of the scribes, the scribes were kind of uh, hand-in-hand with the Pharisees. These guys were the elitist experts in the religious laws of the Jews, right? And there's one of the scribes that was present. He witnessed Jesus sort of schooling the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. And he saw Jesus school his critics enough to the point that he approaches Jesus with a question. And this question is different. This scribe wasn't actually trying to trap Jesus like the other guys. He was genuinely curious. He was genuinely intrigued by Jesus. And he says in verse 28, it says in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he, he comes up to Jesus and asks him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now you need to understand that a scribe back then was sort of like a a half theologian, half lawyer, a vocational hybrid of sorts, all right? And so there were tons, the reason that the, the role of the scribes is there were like tons of religious laws that governed the Jews, that governed Israel at the time, and a scribe's job was to study each law. And to determine the purpose of said law and how they should be observed, how that law should be observed and why that law exists. And so clearly this scribe is a really smart dude. He's really studied. He's really smart. He's an expert in the Torah, in the book of law. And he comes to Jesus with this question. The scribe comes to Jesus and he asks this question. He says, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? He's like, Jesus seems to know more than the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And so he's like, Jesus, I, I got to know what's the most important commandment of all. And history tells us that that was actually a hotly debated topic amongst the scribes and the Pharisees. They were constantly arguing amongst each other on what was the greatest commandment. Because the scribes, they believed that if they obeyed the law perfectly, the Pharisees believed this too, that if they believed, if they obeyed the law perfectly, then they would get God's blessing. In its fullness. And so, if that's your worldview, if that's your view on the world and on who God is, that if you obey the law perfectly, then you'll get God's full blessing, then every tiny detail of the law matters to you, right? And so, this guy, he knows all the 600 plus. Uh, Old Testament laws because he's a scribe, and he also knows the 1,500 traditional laws in the Mishnah outside of the Bible. And this guy's thinking, he's saying, look, there's got to be some laws that are more important than others, and so Jesus, throw me a bone. What is the main thing? What is the most important commandment? And look how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One, and by starting with that really quick, Jesus says, he says, look, if you want to learn what God wants, then you need to start with who God is. Then verse 30, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, let's break those down here. God is saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Now, that word heart in the English, like we think of heart as sort of like how we feel, right? Like that's how what we represent heart with, how we feel, emotions and all. But in Hebrew, which Jesus is quoting from, heart means a bit more than that. In Hebrew, the heart is the core of your identity, the source of all your thoughts, all your words and actions. Everything that you are flows from the heart, There's a Proverbs in in, in Proverbs 4, 23 that says, you know, that that, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's the center of who you are. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, again, in the Hebrew language, this has to do with your passions and with your emotions. It's the life force that fuels you. It's whatever gets you up in the morning, whatever drives you. The soul is where your deep-seated passions live. Then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your mind. That, of course, has to do with your intellect, your like mental faculties, the way that you think, the way you reason, logic and rationality. Like, look, we live currently in an anti intellectualism age or experience spiritual things than, than to really know them. And Jesus is saying here, no, that's a mistake. You need to also love the Lord your God with all your mind. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. And this has to do with, of course, what you do. With your strength, with your might, with your body, with your energy. Like, just what do you, what is it that you do, like, tangibly? Now, why does Jesus say it like this? Why doesn't doesn't Jesus just say, you know what the first and greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God a really, 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 really lot, right? Why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he say, love the Lord your God a whole lot with all that you are? I mean, the point that he's trying to get across by saying love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is he's saying, love him with all of your being. Love him with all that you are. Jesus is pointing, pointing out that we are simple but complex creatures, we're holistic. We're, we're head, but we're also heart and hands. We're heart, but we're also head and hands. He's saying you need to be holistic. You need to be integrated. You need to be healthy. You need to be whole. And so when he says heart, soul, mind, strength, he's not saying these are the four different pieces of your personality. Which one are you, right? He's saying, no, we are whole people. We are complex and integrated people. Jesus is saying, "Love him with all of your life, with all that you are." Uh, this, uh, this 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 uh, pastor once was sort of coaching me and a group of church planners on uh, on this verse, and he he wrote he, he drew this sort of quadrant for for us, where he he put. Um, he said, you know, Jesus calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he, he drew this, you know, vertical line and horizontal line. And he created, created these four uh, quadrants. Um, and man, I feel like this needs to be a whiteboard. I'm, like, feeling really anxious right now. But it's on there for me. It's a graphic. So anyhow, so uh, uh, four quadrants. And he, and, and he said, you know, like, let's, uh, let's break it up like this. He says, let's put mind and strength up top. Let's put soul and heart on, on the bottom. You guys see this? And so he said, you know what, like mind, this tends to be like, uh, uh, like the things that have to do with the mind are, are like, you know, studying theology, getting your doctrine right, knowing what you believe, uh, what's, what's important, what the Bible says, uh, how to read the word, right? Like that's what mind is all, is all about. Romans 12 says, um, you, you know, the, talks about the renewal of our minds. Uh, and then across the way, he, he talks about strength, you know, and you know, strength is obviously like getting things done, doing things for the Lord evangelizing, ministering, serving in the local church. And then soul down here, this, this again has to do with like your, your passions. This has to do with your desires. Soul has to do with like celebrating uh, with, with, other, uh, with other people and, and, and things like that. And then heart has to do with uh, primarily like more like relationships, Right? Things that are relational, things that connect, like emotional and relational health is in is under is under is under heart. And when he pointed out to us is like, you know, like if you're uh, like if you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then what you'll do is like if you're a mind guy like I am, like if you love doctrine, if you love theology, then what, what you'll have is you'll make sure that you have all the Bible verses that you need for why you need to care about the mind. And what you'll do is you'll point fingers across the aisle and like, look at those guys, right? They don't care about theology the way I do. They're not as doctrinally solid as as as, as I am, and we poke fun at each other, and we become tribal and divisive with one another. But like, if you're if you're, if you're if you're one of your uh, strong suits is like strength, right? If you're good at getting things done, serving the Lord, like doing things in in, in the local church, then uh, he says what what will end up happening is you'll have your own list of Bible verses. For why we need to do things, right? Work unto the Lord and things like that, doing all things for the glory of God. And then you'll point your finger across the aisle and say, Man, look at those theologians. All they do is like just debate about tertiary issues and up in their ivory towers, right? And then if you're if you're a heart person, you're saying like, man, like look at look at look at our church. Look at our tribe. Like we're just really good at like loving on people and those guys are too busy arguing or doing all these pragmatic things with their systems and their big churches and stuff like that, but like we've got the real Christianity, right? And I think is Jesus is saying like, no, we need to understand that like we we're, we're, we're complex creatures. We're integrated we're called to be whole. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And so that not only means, practically speaking, that like we value each other's like, gifts and inclinations. Like in, 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 in a church like this, we don't want to be all mind people. We also don't want to be all soul people. We want to be heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that also means that as individual disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, that we want to seek to have the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ bear weight, not in just what we think, storing up doctrines up here, but we want that to get down into our bones where they burn, where we're passionate about them, where we care practically for others. We pray for other churches like we 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 did this this morning. The point Jesus is trying to get across is all of this your heart, soul, mind, and strength needs to be an expression of your love for God Almighty. And see, for Jesus, it doesn't stop with just love for God. He says that love for God is actually the launching pad that drives the way we live in the world. Jesus tells this guy, he tells this scribe, that the greatest, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says in verse 31, he says, the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is about loving your actual neighbor, but it's also about just loving people, pursuing justice, caring for people that are at a, a social disadvantage. It's about defending the oppressed. It's about giving voice to the voiceless. It's about not holding on to animosity, it's about how you speak to others and how you speak about them. Love your neighbor as yourself. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Now we know that this, this, this scribe uh, 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 had, um, uh, wasn't trying to criticize Jesus because in verse 34 it says, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then he ends verse 40, 34 and says, And after that, no one dared to ask him, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. And that word for dared in, 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 the, in the Greek has a sense of, of cowering back in fear. And so what that tells us is that the public. The people around, including the Pharisees, the, scri- the scribes, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, they cowered back in fear. They were terrified of him because of the way that he spoke with authority. They didn't say, oh, that's like how precious, you know? Like Jesus said, it's all about love, right? How precious. He said, no, they were dumbfounded by how he took their whole system He took their whole system with all their assumptions about God and his law and what it means to please him and obey him. And Jesus picked it up and turned it on its head yet again. And look, that is like the one big idea I want you to walk away with from this lengthy text that we've been walking through. The one big idea that I want you to walk away with is that we all have our assumptions about who Jesus is. The Pharisees did, the Sadducees did, the Herodians did, even some of the scribes did, and we do too. We all have our assumptions about who Jesus is and the boxes that he needs to fit into, but the Jesus that we see in Mark 12, the Jesus that we see in this passage breaks open all categories, Listen, whatever view you have of Jesus, whatever view, whatever assumptions, view that you have of Jesus this morning, it's not big enough. It's not beautiful enough. It's not amazing enough. However awesome you think he is this morning, you are just scratching the surface. He is bigger and better and more beautiful than you or I could ever imagine. He's not the God that backs up our social, political causes. He's the king who is Lord over all. He's not the God of just the here and now. He's the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow who loves us with a forever kind of love. He's not the God who demands detached acts of obedience. He's the God who summons us to an overflowing life of love, which is only possible, by the way, because he first loved Us. That's what 1 John chapter 4 tells us. It says that we love, we love God because he first loved us. The whole reason we're capable of loving God, of knowing him, of enjoying him, is because he first loved us. And that is the greatest category that Jesus breaks. That while we were still sinners... While we were still enemies, while we were still doubters and skeptics and questioners, Jesus Christ died for us. Because our greatest enemy is not on the the left side of the aisle or on the right side of the aisle. Our greatest enemy isn't here, it's the sin in my heart, the sin in your heart. And when Jesus hung on the cross in our place for our sins, he gave up everything so that through his brutal death and his triumphant resurrection, he could now give us everything. Namely, God himself. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information
0: about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.